Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Stradley Talking Investment Management podcast. I'm Dave Grimm. I'm a partner in the investment management group here at Stradley, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two very special guests for the fifth episode of our podcast. I'd like to introduce my special guests to the audience. First is Cynthia Pluchet. If you work in the asset management industry, you know that Cynthia doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to give it a whirl anyway. Uh, Cynthia is the chair of the IDC Governing Council, as well as a member of the ICI Board of Governors. She's also an independent director for the Northern Trust Funds and the Northern Trust Institutional Funds, as well as for the Mass Mutual Funds, and has more than 25 years of experience as a fixed income portfolio manager and financial executive. She also has a very long list of involvement with terrific nonprofit initiatives, including the Black and Crimson Passport for Boards, which increases board placement for Black and Latino Harvard alumni, the Alzenia Project, whose goal is to leverage the impact of other nonprofits committed to helping young women of color to achieve personal and professional growth, and The Village, a social venture designed to expand access to out-of-school education for K-12 children. Welcome, Cynthia. We're so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'd also like to introduce Sarah Krovitz. She, too, really needs no introduction for a podcast like this because, like Cynthia, she's been in our industry for more than 25 years. She's currently a partner in our investment management group here at Stradley and has a very broad practice covering fund advisor and board issues. Prior to Stradley, Sarah served with distinction for many, many years at the SEC, including as the Deputy Chief Counsel and Associate Director, leading the provision of legal guidance to the industry as well as the international efforts in the investment management space. Sarah's sophisticated understanding of SEC regulation and compliance for funds and advisors is sought after in our industry, and her expansive practice covers the most pressing issues of the day for us, such that she's a frequent speaker and thought leader um, at conferences and industry events. And so welcome to Sarah. Um, and it's just it's such a thrill for me to have the opportunity to have this discussion with the two of you today. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, there's so much going on at the SEC right now. It's sort of hard for all of us to, including fund directors, to kind of keep up and figure out like what is most important to know. The goal of our time together is to give you exactly that. What is most important to know in an easy to understand way? We picked a number of issues that are top of mind for many directors that we talked to today. The issues are the following, cybersecurity, ESG, the SEC's outsourcing proposal, fund fees and expense disclosure, artificial intelligence, diversity in the boardroom, and succession planning. For each of these issues, Sarah and I are going to summarize the issue, including what's going on at the SEC, and then ask Cynthia to share her perspective as a director and a leader in the industry on the issues. So with that, that's our plan for today, and let's get rolling with our first issue. So we're going to start with cybersecurity. And the way I think about cyber, when, when you ask, either what you ask regulators or you ask many in the industry about the risks that keep you up at night, cybersecurity is often on that list. 
And that is true for many at the SEC, which has taken a number of actions relating to cybersecurity, including a rule proposal for funds and advisors. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the specific requirements in the rule. I think in summary, it requires policies and procedures, SEC reporting, public disclosure, and record keeping. That's that's broadly what, what, what the rule's about. When it comes to fund boards, their obligations under the proposed rule will be to approve those policies and procedures and also to review the annual report. In some ways, the cyber rule is similar to some of the other rules that boards have implemented recently in the risk management space, derivatives and liquidity, right? It's the similar kind of framework where the procedures come to you for your approval and then you you review an annual assessment of the program. There are also some questions around whether this rule is necessary, um, given all the time and energy that everyone in our industry spends on trying to protect against uh, cyber incidents. The SEC has been very aggressive, actually, from an enforcement perspective in the cyber arena. And again, the question is, if they've been aggressive in the enforcement arena, why, why do they necessarily need this rule? Nonetheless, they proposed it, and it's out there for public comment. And so um, here we are, uh, on, sort of on the precipice of them probably adopting it in, in, in the coming months. And so with that wind up, Cynthia, I guess I would turn it to you and say, given the role for boards under this proposal, uh, based on your, your experience, are, are boards concerned with having cybersecurity expertise on their board? Do they think that it's necessary to have an expert as a director? Um, let us know what you think of, of, of the rule and in particular that perspective on it. Well, as you said, you know, we've seen this kind of framework before, right? In terms of how we, you know, have the responsibility of doing, you know, the policies and procedures review and the annual. And so that's not, you know, something that would keep a board member up at night because we're just used to that drill. I think the, you know, if we look at it in addition to the policies and procedures, you know, there's the commitment of sufficient resources to that, right? And so I think that is a, a, a board's responsibility. However you get to that with your discussions with the advisor, I, I think that's important. Uh, you know, having a person on the board with the cybersecurity background, I, you know, it's a conceptually a nice idea, I think. Um, but I think cybersecurity is so rapidly changing and how it gets implemented, what's new, what's current, what are the, you know, and I think that a retired trustee would bring a, a nice lens to look all of that. But basically, my approach or my thinking is that you, you nobody, you know, this is uh, a real time problem. And so you're best served by people who are experts in the industry who are currently involved. And I think many, many, most boards now have access to that professional, um, you know, outreach so that it's part of your, um, your annual reviews. It's part of a quarterly report or, you know, something with, you know, determine frequency. And so I think that's the most important thing. And then ultimately, you know, are you getting the responses 
that makes sense to you that you can understand. I mean, from the management team, um, because again, I, and you'll hear me as we talk, you know, I'm very much one of the, what do they say, noses and fingers out kind of style. I don't think that it's our job to be operational managers per, per se. So, um, you know, I think that's really my take on it is that, you know, boards have access to um, professional consults, if you will, both internally and uh, externally, and they should, you know, as a practice, it makes sense to, you know, to take advantage of that. I agree with you 100%. And in fact, when I get this question from trustees, I try to answer it as well as you just did. And um, so the next time I get it, I might call you to have you help me answer it. Okay. That's exactly how I want to answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so uh, one other question about cyber. I mentioned in the framework uh, of the proposed rule, there's a reporting to the SEC for significant cyber events and that reporting is done is required to be done within 48 hours of the incident happening and i guess the question uh for boards and and for you cynthia is are boards concerned that that kind of a quick turnaround in some ways can be viewed as usurping your board's role in sort of overseeing a cybersecurity incident yeah i you know i would agree with that i, I think that Boards generally, you receive information, and and we are an industry that has a lot of data, and 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 so that's a, a plus, right? But I think you know until you have had a chance, even for management, to assess what's going on and then share that with the board, even if it's a a, a small portion of the board, you you can't actually do your job as a you know for oversight, right? You cannot. Um, oversee the compliance function. And so I, I do think that while I respect the commission wanting to have its finger on the pulse, as you know, you must allow, I, I, I think, um, the, the system to work first, right? And, and when you put the right rules and procedures in place, then um, you're setting up for success for all, uh, you know, because ultimately it is about the shareholder. And so you need to just have a level of patience, if you will, in terms of, um, you know, getting to the conclusion or understanding what's going on. All right. So that's uh, a wrap on cyber. Um, Sarah, I'm going to kick it to you to take our next topic. Great. So we were going to talk next about the ESG and the ESG rule proposal that came out last summer, which should not be confused, of course, with the names rule proposal, which also came out last summer, but has now been adopted. And interestingly, and we won't get into that today, but interestingly, of course, the names rule was adopted um, and the ESG proposal has not been acted upon yet. Um, so the ESG proposal, similar to what we were discussing with cyber, right, the role for the board, again, is sort of an oversight role, a policy and procedure role. Um, the, the rule proposal would require enhanced disclosure uh, for funds and advisors around the ESG strategies. Um, 
And I think, um, namely, to, to put it at a really high level, um, I think the board role there is sort of uh, overseeing the advisor to make sure the advisor is saying what they're doing and doing what they're saying, which I think is sort of where where most people are, the way most people think about ESG. Um, and so I guess I wanted to ask uh, Cynthia, in your role as a trustee um, and sort of thinking about ESG and the policies and procedures you've seen around, um, you know, uh, fund uh, actions and um, disclosure around ESG and funds that you might be overseeing, what do you think boards should be thinking about when they're thinking about um, any kind of policy and procedure oversight or, or disclosure oversight of ESG? Yeah, this is, you know, I would say this is a kind of a delicate topic, right? Because of what's gone on over the past several months and, and as we directors, you're kind of treading, looking for that balance between, you know, overseeing management of conflicts of interest and putting the shareholders interest first. And so I, I think that clearly understanding what's in your portfolios, and 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 now with all the various the language around what you know what type of ESG exposure you know is uh, an important thing to, to consideration. So I'll go to my the back end of I think that ultimately more and more boards will be crafting dashboards that are specific to this ESG question, so that as a board member. You can have the ability to, you know, see all the different layers to see, you know, where your exposures are, because we're in the risk management business, basically, as um, fund directors. And so I, I think that's where we'll eventually land. But right now, I feel like the the landscape is still shifting so much. And then what is the you know, it's not that different from DE&I, you know, where is the board's responsibility? And it's different for a corporate board than where the strategy comes to play more than it does um, in the fun, fun board community. So, you know, what is our role? And I think we go back to our meat and potatoes kind of thing, right? It's where, where are the potential conflicts? Do you understand, you know, what you're telling, um, your shareholders and what management is telling you and then ultimately it's um you know the disclosures right and so perhaps more and more attention now goes to those disclosures because this is how we message out and this is how we are held accountable for you know doing what we say and we meaning governance as well as management right and so that's kind of my short answer. Great. So I guess the second question, and you touched on this already, so maybe there's not more to say about it, but you know, are there good examples you've seen of reports um, or materials that boards can receive from the advisor to help with the oversight role? Yeah, I think, you know, people who've been in the ESG space for a while now have a head start, right? Because they've already been forthcoming. They've been showing you things, uh, you know, and, and we've held um, webinars and uh, conference segments on the topic. And and so now the rest of us are coming up to speed because you're right, you know, with the 
even with the names rule, you know, does that impact what you're calling your funds? And will that cause disruption for a minute uh, in terms of, again, the compliance, the disclosure? So it's, I think I said, you know, changing landscape, you kind of put your seatbelt on a little bit here and then you just, and it's so, um, I think it's really complex by complex, but what we're all looking for and what we're being asked to do is to bring a uniformity to, to that process, which is a challenge, you know, and this is where you sometimes give us more guidance. Tell us, you know, specifically what it is that you're looking for and we will deliver. Right. I think it's particularly challenging because um, it, it seems pretty apparent that when the 33 Act disclosure rule gets put into place, whenever if that happens, whenever that happens, that there's going to be litigation on that rule. And so yes. my fear, my fear has always been that the SEC continues with the fund and advisory SG disclosure rule, so that funds mm -hmm. and advisors are now having to make disclosures about underlying data, which itself yes. may not actually be subject to SEC rule, right, for consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, it, which would be pretty unfair, but unfortunately, I could see that. I guess that, that's my that's what keeps me awake at night. I'm not a director, but that's what keeps me awake at night. Right. No, I, I think you're very right uh, in the sense that you know we do have a lot of data, and where do we kind of draw the line so that an uh, a, a complex, you know, can have some proprietary, you know, information that that's protected because they're in this as a business and you know you need to there's secret sauces right and here's the balance is do we as a board in a confidential way understand what the secret sauce is are we being told enough so that we can understand um you know what what's going on so that there are no you know, no blind sides no surprises and um you know just this is all about a level of trust and confidence, right? In, in the communication between the board and the complex management team. Okay, great. Thanks to both of you. Um, let's kick it to our next topic, which is the advisor outsourcing proposal that the SEC um, rolled out. And very briefly, what that does is it basically makes uh, outsourcing unlawful for an advisor. Like you, you can't retain a service provider to perform outsourced services unless you do the things required by the rules, um, which is basically around due diligence and monitoring. When you go through the public comments on this rule, there's actually not a big focus on boards um, and that's, I think, in part because boards aren't a big focus in the proposal. Um, I think a theme of the comments is, hey, we've got this compliance rule already on the books. And under that compliance rule, the board plays a very prominent role, first of all. And second of all, it already requires oversight of key service providers. So I think there's some question around uh, whether this uh, rule is necessary in the fund space. And then there's also a, a bunch of other questions and confusion around 
the, the, the defined term in the rule is this covered function. I mean, what, what, what even is that, right? What, what is covered, what is not covered, basically. Um, so that's, that's, that's a bit about sort of what's in the rule and what the, what the comments have been. But let's, um, Cynthia, let's bring you into this, right? Ultimately, what this rule is about is service provider oversight, which you, you know, in a, as a director, you live and breathe, you know, all the time. So what, what do you find most helpful in performing that role as a director? Some of the, you know, some of it is comes through the 15C process right away, right? And so, you know, the depth of your 15C process, which I think these days covers more than one quarterly meeting for most boards, you're now some aspect of it, it feels like it's year round. And I, I think that I have not heard of when it didn't work in the way that we're you know doing it now. Um, I think service providers do provide an essential role. Um, and I, as a board member, I do appreciate the highest tier of service providers coming in and giving you uh, insight into their operations. You can look, you know, if there's, um, you know, a lot of M&A activity in the space, lot, you know, there are things that matter to you. And so if you took what to me are the top um, items for this board oversight, I don't think the board should be dipping down to a lower, low, lower level, but hearing from the people who, if you use someone for performance um, metrics, you know, yes, that makes sense. But even that, you know, if you get your hands on a very detailed report and you have a detailed conversation with management, because I think ultimately I'm going to go back to this is management's responsibility for educating the board, for making sure the board understands what what they're doing. Um, then, you know, that's kind of my answer. One place I, you know, different. Well, two things come to mind. How does this impact small funds? And, you know, it's different if you are a large asset under management, but it's, you know, a different set of challenges for small fund boards. So that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. And I do find it interesting to every once in a while lift the investment, the portfolio people off the page and have some of them present to you in person. Um, because you do get a feel for the, you know, never forgetting that there are humans on the other side of this. And and some of your most important, you know, it depends on the structure of the complex, but that human talent, which are doing the investments on your behalf, uh, interesting. And so I would say um, as an aside note that I found have found in the past to be interesting is actually visiting um, the investment management team on their turf rather than just having them come in to you because it does get to be, you know, oh yes, open page five, open page, you know, that sort of thing. But um, but get kicking the tires periodically, but again, management's role to do so. Um, and we have this in-depth process that goes with the compliance role, right? And so, I, you know, I find being asked to 
go further into the vendor relationships, you know, is is just unnecessary, you know, unless there's a problem. And so, um, and then that is the board's responsibility and the management's. Love it. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Sarah, you want to you take the next one? Sure. So um, one interesting uh, item that appeared on the SEC's regulatory flexibility agenda um, for a possible spring proposal is this item around fund fee and expense disclosure. And the, the wording in the RegFlex agenda doesn't give us a lot of detail. It just says the division is considering recommending the commission propose changes to regulatory requirements relating to registered investment companies' fees and fee disclosure. Um, and so it's not entirely clear what that is. Uh, but uh, uh, there have been issues that Dave and I, my God, were involved in this back in like 2002. Um, mm -hmm. There have been periodic efforts uh, to require more, for, I would say, more personalized fee disclosure by funds. Um, and back when we looked at this in the early 2000s, there was sort of a congressional intent or interest in requiring funds to show a quantitative measure of overall transaction costs. Um, and at that time, uh, the SEC pushed back really against this congressional interest, um, basically saying, you know, it, proposals to quantify overall transaction costs are attractive in theory, um, but really not feasible in practice. Um, and, you know, estimates of uh, overall transaction costs um, are not really ones that you can uh, do uniformly or reliably. Um, and so I guess I have a, a couple of questions for you on this. Um, first, I guess, just going to your own fixed income experience. Um, you know, I mean, I think the, the point the SEC was trying to make here is, while you may be able to pretty clearly and, and easily quantify transaction costs if you're talking about commissions, what do you yes. do with something like a fixed income security, right? How do you actually quantify what the cost would be, um, you know, to an investor on that? Um, and, 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 you know, I think that's something that um, has always been a real complication in, with regard to these proposals. Yeah. And, you know, what, first off, I find it interesting that the commission was on the other side of this argument when you from back in 2000. Right. They were. No, we can't do this because of the things that you're saying, you know, and so uh, the world goes around, you know, but um, you're absolutely right that. And it makes sense from reading the notes and, uh, and thank you for that on the, you know, the inability to to pinpoint true cost, particularly in fixed income, is just, you know, it's daunting. And, you know, when we talk about spreads, when we talk about market impact and, and opportunity costs, you know, it, it just doesn't. Um, makes sense unless you know I, I don't see how that happens because a lot of this is a negotiated market of sorts and unless you you know everything was trading by a a, a spreadsheet or a bid list you know there you have some glimpse into um the the pro you know solving the problem i guess but i don't you know i Am I worried about it? Not so much yet because there's so much else on our plates that spring 2024 seems a little bit away, you know, and we got these other battles to, you know, to look at. Uh, but 
that's my overall reaction is that, you know, it is, it feels like it would be cumbersome. It feels like it would add costs to shareholders. And it feels like building that out is going to further narrow who plays, who participates in the market from the service, the providers, as well as, you know, how much, you know, how much uh, information does the shareholder need and want? And I'm not saying don't give them. It's just, you know, there's a balance is my, my point. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about this one. Uh, <laughs> no, but as more, as more information comes out, then we have more to digest. Well, right. right. And, and I've said it before, but you know, ours, especially the registered fund world, you know, we have uh, registered advisors, but we, we have a lot of data and that makes us ripe for, you know, the pickings, if you will, you know, provide us this, provide us that. And so, and the, it's not a bottomless pit of resources that um, are available to do this. And then taking it back up to the board level, where does the board fit in, in this discussion? Um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks. That's great. Yeah. Well, this one will be maybe something we can talk about in a uh, podcast next year, or maybe yeah. we we'll get lucky and we won't have to. <laughs> and we won't have to. Right. Right. Because it it has had an evolution over time since the 2000, and so it, it will be interesting to see. I, I, you know, we know this is fee disclosure is an important um, item, but it, and but it's important to the commission, right? And so where it goes, I think we kind of have to wait and see. Right. And we've already had, you know, we've had shareholder report updates. We've had, you know, yes. numerous sort of registration statement updates over the years. So, it's, you know, do we and really, do we really need this one? And what did we just, what just went through that has until next year to be implemented? It has to do with more tailored. The tailored shareholder reporting. Yeah. Right. yeah. So a lot in summary a lot well said cynthia um let's so go articulate. on to, yeah 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 um, <laughs> let's just add to the a lot pile with our next yeah. topic um which is ai uh predictive data right so here's another area where this one actually the sec has ruled rolled out a rule proposal and just broadly speaking it's it's uh, it's a little bit legal sounding, right? Like basically, advisors have to eliminate or neutralize conflicts anytime they use covered technologies in investor interactions. So, like, and there's a whole bunch of def defined terms there that I'm not going to get into. The way I like to explain it to people is if you have an investing app on your phone, mm -hmm. what the SEC is worried about, right, is Every time you go in, you trade something and you get the balloons celebrating, ah, you know, great job investing, <laughs> that they're worried that that um, promotes, you know, behavior that's maybe not in the best interest of the investors, right? Is that going to encourage you to over trade or invest in things that you really shouldn't be investing in? And so there's that sort of it's not policy quite concern. Moral yeah, it's not quite moral hazard, but it's, I right. don't know. But go right. ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And so, oh, 
okay if that's the policy concern. And then there's this rule that has, you know, all kinds of um, all kinds of uh, concerns with it. Like we're actually the the public comments aren't due quite yet. They're they're due um, in October of 2023. So folks are still working on the specifics of their comments. But I think <laughs> you've already heard uh, sort of a preview of some very very critical. Um, concerns by various folks, right? I mean, you know, this is a war on technology, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's an attack on investor education, right? Like a lot of these tools that are sort of captured by this rule are intended to help the very investors that the SEC seems to be, you know, concerned about uh, their activity. So th there's all kinds of um, really major concerns, you know, when you get to the legal part of it, it's sort of how the rule defines dealing with conflicts is, is, is a new way, you know, sort of would up, up, you know, turn, overturn longstanding approaches to how to deal with conflicts. Um, there's questions about the SEC's authority to do this rule at all. So there's going to be a lot in, in, in the comment file. For sure. Um, so, looking forward to, um, to to reading all of those all of those comments. But with that kind of wind up, Cynthia, you know, there's lots of discussion of AI these days, right? It's in the headlines all the time. Obviously, the advisors and the compliance folks at 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 at, at the managers and the, and the lawyers are are wound up about this proposal. But talk about how boards, you know, you know, what do boards think about AI? Yeah. So it's early in the game for us, I would say, right? It's, um, but, you know, most of, of the discussions that I've been privy to or heard, you know, it's been more about the benefits of AI, right? And, and the good that can be done from various aspects of, of the fund business and so and i personally am excited about what's happening in this technological aspect of of what you know the environment that we find ourselves in i think the piece about investor education it's absolutely true you, you know that that you can you know we talk one of my things is about financial literacy right and so how can you get education literacy out to younger generations in particular and make that be something that makes sense to them? And, if, you know, you, maybe you're worried for, you know, the promoting behavior that feels like gambling. But, you know, there will be a certain percent of the population um, that that will take that avenue. But I don't believe that you set policy and regulations to, you know, to minimize the bad. Well, you minimize the bad, but you should be uh, facilitating an overall lift and improvement for your shareholder base, your shareholder community. And so I, you know, I would be one who just keeps marching on the what about the investor education here? And what about, you know, making in a world that's just going gangbusters to 
um, you know, a more technologically driven um, place, I think you have to kind of get with the program. And I appreciate that we don't want, you know, that this possibility where the interest of the advisor and the fund might not always be aligned on this, but until we kind of flush out and know more about what's being done, we can't know that. And I'm not a person who just goes to the negative side of things, right? And that's not how I lead. And I, I just, I believe that you can, you know, from a investment manager standpoint, if you build a new widget and it helps you bring more um, returns to your investors, you should be within boundaries, able to do that, to pursue that. And so, um, you know, that's kind of my take on is that we should support <laughs> the development of the technology, which and the companies who do that. And you do put the bumper, you know, the guardrails up, but I, I find it, you know, we've been around, mutual funds have been around a long time. Um, we are, we need to um, kind of rise up to the level of what shareholders are expecting these days. Um, because I would say that, you know, we want, we don't want to be the dinosaur. And that's a concern I have that we, we, we need to provide for those 100 million people who use, you know, mutual funds or whatever, an opportunity to keep it simple, keep it regulated and keep opportunities of, you know, positive investment returns um, in place. Cynthia? I have a really important question for you. Yes. When is your TikTok video on financial literacy coming out? <laughs> uh, I'll script it and let someone else do the, you know, get the glory. So Cynthia, thanks. And, and I think that response just um, demonstrates why you're uh, such a, a cherished and valued independent trustee um, in, in so many places. Um, so we also wanted to touch on a couple of non-regulatory issues. Um, that I think, um, well, that I know are important to you. Um, so what can you tell us about uh, the IDC's initiatives around board diversity? Because I know that's something that you've been really involved in. Yeah, you know, and it's, I'm very proud uh, that it's um, over the past year, IDC really has taken a variety of initiatives and they've been in a variety, you know, various forms, right? And so we have a speaker series and, um, recently, we had Ken Burns and Roger Ferguson last year or so, and even within those discussions, um, interviews, we weave in um, diversity and inclusion. And so my point is that at every aspect of, of IDC, it we keep that, you know, at the forefront. Um, and that's, you know, just you know, so there's the speaker series, which is more indirect. And then um, we have more directly a partnership with Diligent, which has basically created a portal type um, situation for um, interested ca candidates to put their information in and 
um, have board opportunities um, be accessible to them through through that work. Uh, we've continued to build a relationship with the Twigo Foundation, um, which is supportive of, you know, um, in the financial services world, many, many uh, wonderful uh, candidates have come out of that, um, that um, organization. And then we're doing something called a pilot program called Connections, where we provide the opportunity for um, someone who wants to be a board, a fund board director to talk to someone, they call them seasoned, uh, you know, trustees. And, uh, and so those one-on-ones help you, even if you're kind of early in the process of, of, you know, thinking about fund boards and thinking about what they mean and what we do. And so those are sort of the indirect things. And then more directly, we have each year as part of our conference, we'll have panels that address the topic as well. And so I would say, you know, we, we've, we're doing a lot and we have more to come for the year ahead. And, you know, again, basically we're just trying to keep the issue front and center without beating anyone over the head about it, um, but with realizing the importance, both gender diversity, um, you know, all kinds of diversity and keeping an eye on how the meter is moving. That's great. Uh, really, uh, it's just uh, wonderful to hear the initiative that the IDC is doing in this area. Um, and uh, uh, so glad that you're there and uh, supporting and pushing them through. Um, yeah. So I guess our last, the last topic we want to just touch base with you on because it's such a perennial issue for all boards uh, is succession mm -hmm. planning. How do you think about board succession planning? Are there any tips you would share with uh, your colleagues who are listening to this podcast when they start to think about needing to replace someone on their board? Yeah, you know, so my first thought about this is that you keep it as transparent as possible. And that's a, bal a balancing act too, right? Because you want everyone to be able to give feedback or weigh in. And so I think a lot rolls into the chair um, for this. I think that transparency or the council also plays a good role here. And I say that because to the extent that council does our assessments and helps us, you know, with the annual uh, is making it clear in that process that you can raise your hand to be considered, right? And so it's not raising it in the middle of the boardroom, but it is saying in the, you know, the confidence of your assessment, yeah, this is something I think I would like to do. And I, I think that ties in also with being very straightforward and direct in terms of um, how you committee chairs and the whole thing, you know, succession um, I, I believe I, I'm a supporter of succession in terms of um, board term limits or, or role limits, I should say, so that you give an opportunity for leadership to be um, passed around in, in the boardroom. And um, so, you know, and again, I think the um, that's the most important thing, I think, is the balance that has to happen. And when you're you know, and you can't, um, you know, you can't let it be 
oh, we're now a year out. I think good succession planning starts, you know, at least a couple of years. But one, it takes a while to find candidates. And two, and, and we're not, if I'm talking about succession of the chair, I always hope that you can find that person from within the group, the existing board, uh, you know, and so um, that's why I say give people the chance to raise their hand. Um, I, you know, those that's the the part that, you know, I would say sticks with me the most. Did, I mean, have you have I missed anything on that or was something you would ask me about succession planning that I'm not focusing I mean, I guess on? the only other the only other thing. To, you could address if you have any tips on it would be sort of bringing in new candidates that process what do you think works really well for um, having the board see good candidates obviously the IDC diligent resources one people could be using um, but are, are, you know those kinds of resources how, how do you think about that yeah I, I think that the IDC portal is just you know getting started and we have you know had the what what we tried and I've seen others get away from is just having it be that close network of your closest friends. I'll say it that way, right? And so how do you as a board expand your, your cast your net wide, more widely? And, and a lot of times there are third parties who will help you do that. Um, there are, I think council comes in handy because over time, just gathering um, resumes, and we know this is a highly networked kind of um, community, right? And so uh, IDC members, that's, you know, we are there to, you know, you, if you call in or email in, someone will talk to you, um, you know, to help you ready yourself. Um, and, but I think this is also getting to onboarding. And once you have done the work of, you know, whittling down a list of 30 to a list of five to you get the person who you think fits you, you know, then just making, again, I call on it. My experience has been that council has helped to do some orientation and to make, you know, people aware that you won't get this all in your first or two meetings, you know, and so I think the runway that people have matters, um, you know, because it just takes a while. And so um, that's, you know, that patience again is um, important. Some people can hit the ground running. More and more boards, you know, are putting in um, age, you know, limits. And so that matters um, in terms of, and I, you know, I think the days of people having 25 year terms on boards is probably you know, in the rear view mirror. Um, so, um, yeah, I think ultimately board work and the fun board work is about collaboration and who you will be in the trenches with. And I think it matters even more so now, um, and I'll close with this, is that I think, you know, as the landscape keeps changing, as technology, as uh, regulatory demands grow, the makeup of your board can change too. You know, we don't all need to be portfolio managers. We don't all need to be accountants. You know, but um, but but those people who are just analytically focused, problem solvers, and with personalities that can you know 
worked with other people. That's and it's not always easy with type A's, you know. They're used to this is my show. Oh, <laughs> you know? There are no type A's on any of your boards, are there? Oh no. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, that's really, really terrific. So I, I guess I, I just close by saying that was it was just an amazing discussion. I mean, there's so many more things we could we could we could talk about, but I, I let's wrap it for now. And I just wanted to say thanks so much yeah, to and both. Thank, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It's I learned a lot on the way, you know, which I always think if you've gotten something out of it, then that's great. So thank you very much for having me. That's funny. Your message is exactly mine. I was like just thinking how much I learned as we were talking today. So thank you. Uh, thank you for teaching me. It's, it's been great to have you. And I'm sure our audience also learned a lot from listening to us. So thanks again. And, 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 and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode five of Stradley Ronan's Talking Investment Management Podcast. For more than 95 years, Stradley Ronan's investment management practice has helped shape the investment management industry by assisting with the creation of innovative investment products and services. From obtaining industry-first, exemptive and no-action relief to assisting in the development of novel products, we have helped our clients become or remain industry leaders. As the investment management industry and our clients have evolved, so have we. Adding attorneys with experience in emerging areas such as next-generation exchange-traded products commodity futures trading commission regulation, and swaps and other derivatives trading. Meet our team at stradley.com. <laughs>